Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Camille Weber. We're at Chateau Bianca Winery. We are on uh, Monday, July 20th, 2015, interviewing Helmut Wetzel and his son, Andreas Wetzel. And I'll turn it over to Camille for the first question. So our first question for both of you guys is, why wine? <laughs> well, Do I get to answer that one first? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I guess for myself, um, the, the reason wine is... Uh, what we do is because it's been so much a part of our family. Uh, I am now in the fourth generation in my family to be involved in the wine industry. My father's grandfather was the one that started us in Würzburg, um, which is a small town in northern Bavaria, uh, where the wines are known as Steinbein, and the region is known as the Franken region. Uh, most of the wines there that are produced are white wines, and some of our winemaking style actually lends itself towards the wines that we make here today from our earlier heritage. So for me, it was kind of a natural. It wasn't something that I thought of uh, when I was in school, like you guys. Uh, when I got out, I wanted to be involved in our, in our winery here in Oregon, uh, which at the time was Laurel Ridge up in Forest Grove. Uh, it had just recently been renamed uh, to Laurel Ridge, and at that point in time, it was still very small. So I went back to school, or I, I, sh I should say, after I got out of school, I went back to Alaska, where I, I grew up, and I got my uh, teeth cut in the wine industry by opening up my own wine distributorship. So some of the first wines that we carried were, it was a broad international portfolio, but we also carried some Oregon wines from our family's winery up in Alaska. Um, and that's how I got into the industry. And then much later, after we uh, sold off the distributorship, uh, was when we decided together that we were going to start a new winery. Uh, and that's how this started here. We bought this property in 1990. So, well, your turn. The question was, why wine? Well, yeah, why for wine? me, it's <laughs> part of history. Well, to, for me, uh, the reason wine, all my life, I enjoyed uh, wine because uh, it wasn't our family blood. However, we also like a good beer. And the story always goes like this. It takes a lot of good beer to make good wine. You probably heard that before. <laughs> but uh, I thought my retirement program could be a winery. And since Andreas enjoyed uh, wine as much as I did, we decided to have a winery. And I split up uh, with my partner at the time at Laurel Ridge and we started our own here. So wine is in our blood. That's why wine. Even so, uh, my trade is actually cabinet making. And when I say cabinet making, uh, most misunderstood name in the United States, because it doesn't mean you make kitchen cabinets, it means that you can make furniture. There's a huge difference. So anyway, that answer your question? Yeah. Just to start at least. All right. <laughs> so how did you choose this spot and how did you choose the name Chateau Bianca? Well, uh, yeah, why did we choose your spot? That's a good, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, uh, 
we, uh, we had a restaurant in Lincoln City. We were running it while we were looking uh, for a piece of property. And we had picked uh, three different areas, but there was nothing really uh, for sale. And so we kept driving around. Uh, we had a motorhome, a big motorhome, and Andreas and I ever so often drove around. And we had picked this site, and the old saying was, if they have blackberries there and plums, that's a good site for a vineyard. Well, uh, they had that on this property. We drove by here, there was an old fruit stand here, Blischke, it was called Blischke. And uh, one day we drove by here and the guy that morning had put up a sign for sale. So we stopped and uh, talked to this gentleman and it was too small because actually he had, what was it, 65 acres only? 67 acres. Yeah, something like that. And I told him that's too bad because uh, we are looking for 100 acres because uh, I knew from my past experience for equipment and to manage a vineyard you need a bigger size than that. Oh, he said, I got another 20 acres uh, that uh, I could throw in. I wanted to sell it uh, separately. So I said, well, you throw it into the price and I'll buy it. And we bought it that day and he was happy. And we were happy. So <laughs> it isn't quite 100 acres, but it's close. And the other reason why this site was very important to me, now you don't know it today because it's pretty wind still, but we were looking actually for a windy site. I learned that from my grandfather, where there's uh, a lot of wind, there's no bugs. Hmm. And when we first built here the vineyard, a lot of other wineries uh, owners would stop by and say, are you stupid to build here, too much wind here? Well, we have smiled. <laughs> and so we have never sprayed to get rid of bugs. And to me, this is huge. We, we just don't have this problem and uh, rather have a little wind, you get a little bit of damage in the, in the trellis system. But I rather, and Andreas concurred with that, we rather do a repair there than actually use some poisonous uh, stuff for bugs. Okay? That's why we picked this site, that's why we have it. That's amazing. So, and so why the name? The name, oh right. Well that is simple to explain. His sister impressed the hell out of us when she came out of college. She landed a job with a very big corporation and became the technical director of it right out of college. And we decided, well by golly that impressed the hell out of it. If we ever have a winery of our own, we call it Bianca. Because that's her name. So that's how we picked the name Chateau Bianca. And winery Bianca didn't sound good, so we decided the <laughs> French name of Chateau. But we didn't have a Chateau, of course. And we actually wanted to build one. This is actually just a carriage house. And carriage house because this building has eight garages, including a huge uh, RV garage. And we wanted to build always a Chateau here. We have the plans for it. But 9-11, cut the uh, financing for it out. It was supposed to come from Otto Fassant in Germany because we had it planned as a big B&B. &B. Mm. And then I got too old. And so Andreas is so busy with winemaking, so we leave it just as it is. <laughs> but there were actually supposed to be a chateau here. It's a gorgeous building uh, that actually exists at the East Coast. And we bought the plans for it. And that's what we wanted to do originally. 
So now if we call this a hotel, which it isn't, it's just a carriage house. You can fool most of us into thinking it though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that other one would have been something else. <laughs> but like I said, the financing um, uh, fell apart after 9-11 because they pulled everything. The industry for tourism got so bad at the time that they were not interested. And uh, so then I kind of lost interest in it too due to my age. Okay. All right, so how would you guys identify your wine regionally? Um, how is your climate and soil different from perhaps other wineries in the area? Yes, that's why I would say that uh, the, the main thing that is unique about our site is that, um, as my father was just mentioning, um, we are definitely influenced by the coastal maritime air. Um, and we are basically right at the tip of the Banduja Corridor. So currently myself and a number of other vineyards in the area are in the process of getting a sub-ABA uh, approved through the TTB, which is a very long and slow process. But our goal is to call it the Banduja um, Corridor ABA. And the reason for that, again, is partially due to the, the wind, but it also has a lot to do with the unique microclimate that we have, the soil types, a lot of it uh, in this area is sedimentary, and the vineyards that would be part of that are all based on those characteristics, but also certain elevations. So our site here is between about 650 and 700 foot elevation, and uh, very sedimentary soils, uh, which is very apparent when we first planted here. Fairly shallow topsoils, but a lot of uh, minerality-based uh, material in the substrata. Uh, so everything here, uh, except for a small planting on the east side of the property, is dryland farmed. So the vines were originally planted and then watered by tractor, and then once they establish a root structure, they don't get any more water after that. So they have to manage to survive on the water that they get in the winter months and that's enough to get it through to the ripening season in the fall. So I would say from a standpoint of winemaking, um, we, are, we have kind of a combination in terms of the styles of wines that I produce. Uh, New World for sure, uh, on the white wines we're looking for fresh fruit forward style wines that are well balanced. Uh, a lot of the winemaking thought goes into how will the wines pair with food because to me that's a very important part of wine. 90% of the wine produced in the world is meant for food consumption. However, we do fully understand that, uh, especially in this country, there's a lot of people that uh, did not grow up with wine, so they do not have that background and understanding of pairing wine with food. So you have to have things for those people that allows them to make that transition into wine. So if you've gone out and done wine tasting, um, you're going to be looking for those things that have some sweetness to them. Riesling, of course, is the noble grape variety that is most well-known in Germany, but it can be produced in a multitude of different fashions, from very, very sweet to ultra-dry and everything in between. And those wines that are on the slightly sweeter side are known as Lieblich, so that means they're very easy to drink. And we make wines that have sweetness because we feel that you can't exclude all those people that have a curiosity and interest in wine just by offering them dry wine. Now, Oregon is known for Pinot Noir, and of course Pinot Gris is our big white variety, but those wines are typically produced fairly dry. And if you're wanting to experience wine and you're just dry does not appeal to you, that first introduction should be something that has a little bit of sweetness, because now you'll start to learn to appreciate the characteristics of wine, 
And at that point in time, as you go on, hopefully you'll have somebody that will give you the opportunity to try different wines with different types of foods. And you'll find very quickly that the wines with sweetness have a very, very limited use where the wines that are drier are much more interesting from the standpoint of what they compare with food-wise. So in that regards, the whites, I would say, were very, very much driven towards fruit-forward styles. Uh, we do make some wines that have a little bit more floral notes to them. And then Pinot Noir is very traditional in the States, so that's something that definitely has uh, European influence on it. Um, you know, we have a range of Pinot Noirs that I produce from uh, lighter bodied wines, again, trying to appeal to that consumer that wants to experience Oregon Pinot Noir for what it's so reputable for, but at the same token not getting so esoteric that you're talking about, you know, uh, mushrooms and, you know, forest floor notes and pine needles and all those kind of things that you can find in those wines, but there's so much complexity there that if you're new to this variety, it's really hard to get you to understand that. And it's also very difficult, especially when it comes to the pocketbook. Because if you've been into any store, you're going to find that most of the Oregon Pinot Noirs are fairly expensive. So I, I like to give the comparison to the consumer that if you've never had Merlot before, you can find a $9 bottle of Merlot and you can find a $90 bottle of Merlot. And you can say, okay, I can see why there's a big difference. With Pinot Noir, you don't have as much opportunity that way because a lot of what's produced in the state is on the higher end. So you're going to probably start at $35, $40, all the way up to $100 plus now. Uh, and most people are not going to start their um, understanding of a varietal by spending $100 on a bottle of wine. So one of the things that we do very successfully is we produce wines that are varietally true, that have been put into barrels, that are very easy to drink, but they're very affordable, under $20 a bottle. And there's a big segment of the populace out there that has heard so much about Oregon Pinot Noir, that's who buys that wine. And for them, it's a, a great everyday drinking wine. One thing I should throw in there too, in terms of red varietal, Pinot Noir is probably by far the most versatile in terms of pairing with food. You can pair it with fish, and you can pair it with meat, and everything in between. And most varieties, you don't have that kind of uh, versatility in it. Um, I like heavier reds. We make some ourselves. Uh, we do Syrah and Tempranillo and some things like that. But they're much more pinholed into a narrower association with food pairings than you would find with Pinot Noir. So. So what was it like to start this place? Then once you purchased the land, what was the, what, what's the process after that? <laughs> lots of money. <laughs> I was going to say lots of calluses. Not <laughs> too. Yeah, I mean, if I were to um, start out with that one, um, as my dad said, you know, this building we actually had a, a contractor that started it, and uh, due to some issues that we had with the contractor, they walked off the job. We finished it. So we put in all the windows and the roofing and finished the construction. Um, all the buildings that you saw down below, uh, except for the um, big tank room, we built ourselves. So originally what was here, and I don't, we have some photographs I think still of the old building. As my dad said, it was a fruit stand. And um, being a very frugal farmer that he was, there were about six different types of tar paper on the roof. <laughs> so every time there was a windstorm, there was a different color of tar paper that went on the roof. So that was just one aspect of the building. The other part was that when you pour concrete, you typically level the ground so that when you put rock in and then you put the concrete in, you have a nice even slab. 
Well, when we started working on the building, we discovered there was, you know, a couple inches on one side and there was like a foot on the other side. Well, so he just, three feet on he just poured <laughs> happily away. Um, so anyway, needless to say, we kind of built um, the winery around that original structure. And the, the taste room today um, is that old building. And everything has been redone and rewired and so on and so forth. The front offices, we built those. The first tank room we built, which was in the back, and then later on we added on to that where our bottling area is. And you know, later on, if you guys want to come down, we can show you all that part of the, the building. And then over time, as we were growing this, and this grew from a 500 gallon poly tank to cooperage in excess of 100,000 gallons, um, you add buildings and you add tank space and you have to change things around. So it wasn't like we said, okay, well, t we're going to build a 10,000 case facility. Today, if we were to bottle everything that we do, you're looking at about 47,000 gallons, 47,000 cases of wine finished. So it's very, very different from when it started. Um, but yeah, most of everything that we did, including planting our vineyards, we did ourselves. And it wasn't until we got to the point where the family was making wine and taking care of vines and building buildings and running the taste room that we finally had to say we have to start hiring some employees otherwise we will never get a vacation or a day off. So anyway, um, that's that's my version of it. What's your version of it? Yeah, well, you pretty much said it all. <laughs> but uh, what you said, uh, how you start from after you have the property, of course, we did uh, soil testing uh, besides blackberries and plums. <laughs> and we, we did that, of course, and we found out exactly what the soil types we had on this property. All of that was important to us. And amazing or not, uh, after over 25 years here, we still have acres that we want to plant. And part of the reason for that is we wanted to find out what is really the best variety and also, uh, what variety of Pinot Noir, for instance, uh, would be the best for the site. And uh, we now pretty much know exactly what we're going to plant uh, for the rest of it. I mean, it's a long process. It's a long process. That's how we are. And we didn't want it to plant something and then rip it out or uh, actually uh, put another uh, system wood on. We didn't want it to do that. Uh, we wanted to do it the way we felt the soil would uh, establish a much better food. And we have proven to be right. I mean, we have won enormous awards with some of our wines that uh, I'm personally very proud of, Suez Andres, of course. And in fact, I got to tell you a little story about that. Uh, 2011, we made uh, an incredible uh, Pinot Gris. And uh, Andreas was on vacation and he got uh, notice of an award and he was calling me and I said, uh, wow, uh, I want to have a case or two in my cell of it. Well, he said, Dad, I'm sorry, before we got the award, I sold it all to Costco. <laughs> so I go to Costco to buy my own wine bag <laughs> so I could try my own wine. I mean, if that isn't the story. <laughs> and the guy at Costco, he knows me that I always go and have it checked out. He said, what are you doing, Helmut? Would you buy your own wine back? And I said, yes, I told him the story. He couldn't quit laughing. <laughs> so, anyway, so we, uh, we kind of uh, did our due diligence on that also. And uh, that was very important for us. And uh, we have been proven right on that. 
we did one other thing actually. We, we didn't want it to be us believe ourselves. Uh, we sold Adelsheim at one time, our uh, Pinot Blanc. Wanted to find out what he thought about that. And he wanted to keep buying that and of course we didn't want to do that. Uh, so he was delighted with that also. So it wasn't just us. I mean, we, we knew what we were doing here the right way. So. So who were some of the early winemakers that you guys had a relationship with or had worked with over the years? We mentioned Charles Corey and Dickie well, Rath a couple of moments ago. I have to answer that. Uh, well, Charles Corey, um, yeah. David Teppeler, have you heard that name before? Law of which winery is associated with that. David Teppeler and I, we decided after we have had some wine from Charles Corey, uh, we decided after we had this wine, boy, we need to buy into this. And it was for sale, a certain amount. So we bought two thirds of Charles Corey at the time, David and I. And then we decided uh, we're going to make it bigger and bigger. Found out ultimately we had to sell uh, or buy out Charles Corey, which we did. And then we grew actually to the largest winery in Oregon at the time, under Rudas Hill. We renamed it Rudas Hill. Rudas was the original uh, guy that had that property on Forest Grove and won already in the World's Fair, and won was that in 1907 mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. He won gold medals already, he was wine produced there at that site. And we thought, well, we got to name it Rudas Hill again. Ultimately, we changed it because we closed it down for three years and then we started it and then we renamed it Lollowitch Winery. So that was Charles Corey. Uh, you said, what is the earliest guys? Well, Dick Ewers is one of them. Uh, Dick and Knudsen together had uh, the winery. Knudsen was the money behind it. Dick was the winemaker. He was an electrical engineer. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. He's also German, by the way. Did you know that also? No, no, I didn't. So I got along with him very well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but Dick didn't like to make champagne. He had a little problem with it. So he bought all kinds of equipment to make champagne. Well, David and I were able to obtain that equipment if we promised to make champagne for Knutsen, because Dick wasn't really interested in it. And so we did, and we actually made the champagne for them and obtained the equipment. With actually, two pieces were very nice and brand new. Other equipment wasn't very good, we had to replace it later on. But we actually started with that for Knudsen. They broke up later on and uh, he went together with, uh, what's the guy's name? From the Champagne House now. Argyle. Argyle. What is his name? Uh, Rawlinson. And uh, they made then Champagne and that's mainly for Knudsen, that's how that got started. So. We knew Ponzi, we know all of these people, we met those over the years. Um, yeah, what else? I mean, actually the earliest one I met was a guy from uh, Roseburg, uh, Sumner. He was actually the first one to plant a vineyard after Prohibition. He made mainly Riesling, which I didn't like at all. <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, he did, and he was a nice enough guy, but uh, 
the wines were not something that I would like very much. And then comes the big problem between um, uh, David Lett and myself. David Lett was a winemaker, Charles Corey was a viticulturist. They both came out of UC Davis together and moved up north to the Willamette Valley. Now, nobody, neither Charles or uh, Elas, always said, well, I was the first one, except for David that always said, I planted the first vineyard. I don't think so. I think it was Charles Coley, because that's what his business was. And then he planted David Lentz. That's really, I think, what happened. So we butted heads over the years. I made my statement, he made his statement. You probably heard that story. But anyway, uh, uh, Charles Corey uh, was a viticulturist and did some small things. So anyway, anything else added that you want to know? I had a question about when you when you purchased his winery yeah. and you renamed it and then you shut it down. Why why the shutdown and the and the rename? Uh, that was when interest rates hit twenty two percent. We had a floating uh, loan. Millions of dollars. I can show you still the tank farm we had at Buddha's uh, Hill at the time. And they were robbing us. The bank was literally robbing David and I. We couldn't grab fast enough in the back and peeled out the $100,000 for the bank. And we decided that's it. So we made a deal with the bank. We sold everything that we had and shut it down. That's what we did. Uh, because we just couldn't do it. And then came... Um, Oh, what was that uh, attorney name? Dowsett. Dowsett. Have you heard that name before? Mm -mm. Well, Dowsett um, bought actually the vineyard at the time from us. Because David and I, we kind of had our fill at that time. After all that investment, after losing all that money at that high interest rate, I mean, you can imagine when you spend over $200,000 every month, uh, every year, just on interest payments, I mean, that, that becomes uh, pretty harsh. And uh, so anyway, Dowsett bought it, and then he asked us, since we own the winery license still, to be partners of mm -hmm. his uh, environment there. Well, he had no knowledge of anything in that regard. So we actually had him as a partner for a while, and then we bought him out also, and that was David and I again. I broke away from David for a very funny reason. <laughs> it's a real lousy road still today to the winery, to David Hill winery. And it was a washboard, you know. Mm -hmm. And you straighten out a washboard, it's gravel. It always reappears again. I don't know why that is during the construction time. And drove a real nice BMW. I have always driven nice Mercedeses and we were beating up our cars on this lousy road. <laughs> so we decided that's it. <laughs> we got to break away from that. And we did. I told David, you can have it. <laughs> Just give me my money, we split it all up, and we did. And then we were, had first a restaurant in Lincoln City uh, as a time Andreas wanted to do absolutely something. And then we were looking for a property, and that's when we came here. So that was a story about that. And so one of the things we always hear when we do these interviews or when we talk to wine industry folks around here is the, 
is the kind of the close-knit relationships among especially the early winemakers in the area, the kind of the personal relationships outside of the wine business itself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, actually we had a neighbor, uh, Schaefer, Schaefer Vignette, mm-hmm. are you familiar with that? He, he made wine, we actually uh, sold wine of his in our distillership in Alaska. And uh, so we met with him uh, quite frequently. Also, where we got involved with, because they bought champagne from us, was um, uh, out, renamed after Oregon and, uh, and uh, Montana. Oh, Mount Noor. Mount Noor. Hmm. When Mount Noor started out, they came out of the woodworking industry, and they still are. Uh, I forgot the name of it. You have to forgive me. I mean, uh, I, I have that old age disease, you know. I mean, you have it, but you don't. You have to think <laughs> about it. Or ask somebody. So anyway, uh, Mountain Oak bought uh, for their opening uh, of their winery and vineyard uh, champagne from us and we met them and we stayed in close contact with them. They're very nice people, but uh, they were not much into wine drinking. As a matter of fact, when the family, it's a funny story, when the family was invited to come, all of these loggers and all the people involved in it, they served beer. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that. But they were very, they were super people, super nice people, but not into wine so much. It was more the manager there that was into wine. Yeah, we did that, uh, and Dick, you asked, uh, we went uh, together with him a lot. Uh, he, Dick and I got together very well, and so did David, David Tepeler. Uh Have you heard much about him at all? Only when we were looking up, we were researching you, really, that was mm-hmm. the first we heard of him. Yeah, David uh, and I, that is probably important for you guys to know. The reason we came together, I had two factories in Alaska, and I was buying hardware from his company. He used to own National Builders Hardware in Portland, and he had a brother. And uh, David and I, we always enjoyed getting together and uh, enjoyed wine. So we ultimately decided, uh, well, you know, we have had a chance, we're going to get into the wine industry. And so when David ended up with his own winery, he sold his part in David Hill, or Laurel Ridge at the time, and moved it to his farm. He had a fairly large farm in Carlton. Carlton. And uh, I stayed with David, uh, friends forever. In fact, his father was a real good friend of mine. Uh, also comes out of the uh, uh, iron industry, hardware mainly. And uh, so that's how I met David, uh, through my business, and respected uh, him greatly. And we had uh, a good relationship. But David, uh, you can almost call him also a pioneer because uh, that was very early on when we did our, our thing here. And uh, there was also not a lot of good wine made. I have to say that, to very recently, uh, when it got better the last 10 years, huh? mm-hmm. when we went to the festivals. And I was with David at one of the very first wineries when uh, Newport Festival opened mm-hmm. up. And it was old Mo that started that. <laughs> have you heard of Mo? Mm-hmm. The story there? Well, she was a gracious woman. Uh, she opened up her restaurants uh, for the first day when we, when we had the festival invited all the wineries and the helpers there, 
bring your open bottles and enjoy each other. And so we met a lot of people that way. And she provided the food. Wow. Free of charge. I mean, and that would cost her a, a number, I'll tell you. Because uh, wineries are usually very hungry <laughs> for good food. Especially she had a lot of oysters. And so, um, yeah, we met a lot of people that way and got together all the time. Yeah, you're right. It was a very close-knit family. Uh, we met also together with, um, they still do that today for technical uh, information. Mm -hmm. um, one of the winemakers that we had was Rich Cushman. Mm -hmm. You all heard that name, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Before, Rich is a super champagne maker. Um, and uh, <clears throat> he had technical uh, advice all the time for a whole bunch of people. They meet at the different miners, and they still do it today. I don't know, do there are many places besides us here that still get together? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that there are. Yeah. Because it grew so large now that I don't even know most of the wineries anymore. Well, it's too much. I mean, uh, you know, if you, you have a certain places you know and you go and visit them. But beyond that, they're, they're popping up everywhere. I found another winery is on the way to McNimble yesterday. New one. <laughs> so it's it's difficult now, but another one which, which we were in close contact with was Ailey, mm -hmm. and uh, the present owner, what's her name? Um, Mary Olson. Mary Olson. Yeah, we, we still get together and, you know, we meet. And then also, don't let's forget uh, uh, down south. Um, Bridgeview. Bridgeview. Uh, we have a good relationship with Sam. Uh, she is German. Her son uh, was born in Germany and uh, speaks German also. So that's always a good connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're right. I mean, it, it absolutely was a very close-knit family which is now losing it. It's too big. It's just plain too big. I think that there's one thing that I would add to that, and that is um, even though we have seen an explosion in the number of wineries, I mean, back when Laurel Ridge was started and Ruder's Hill at that time, I always, when I share the history of Oregon with consumers, Tell me, you could count the number of wineries on two hands. Today, you need a small army of hands and feet to count the number of wineries that there are. But I would say one of the things that um, I would very strongly um, tell people, and that is, um, I still feel that it's it's a small enough industry where if you have a need, or whether it's technical advice, or you have a piece of equipment that's giving you a problem, um, and you're in a pinch, there's always somebody willing to step forward and help. <clears throat> so whether that means we've lent out equipment or people have um, lent us equipment or there's an issue that somebody may have run into that you haven't dealt with before, there's always that free willingness to share information, which is what makes the industry better. So I would say that that's something that still exists very much today. <coughs> that's so. true. That's true. Uh, so Hamel, you mentioned a couple of moments ago that within the last 10 years, um, the wine being produced here has drastically improved. Um, what do you think has attributed to that kind of improvement? Well, first of all, it's the age of the vines themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, no question about it. Uh, you know, we always used to say six years. 
is when uh, a grapevine actually uh, will produce the perfect food. I don't think uh, that agrees with me. Uh, it will take some time. Technique, of course, is one thing also in the winemaking, but uh, I think also uh, a grapevine, uh, maybe I should go a little bit back there. My grandfather used to say after a real good year, well, next year I hope the year would be different. I could never understand it as a kid. I mean, don't forget I was below 10 years when I was doing that, you know. I was born in 1934, so even so it was at the beginning of the war when I spent a lot of time in Würzburg. But still, I couldn't understand what he, what he meant by it. And one of my family is always doing this. They, they never really tell you everything. They say, steal with your eyes or pay attention to what we are saying. And uh, I'm a great believer in that, and I taught Andreas, I steal with your eyes, just come on. Don't ask me all these stupid questions all the time. <laughs> and, and so my, my parents, as well as my grandfather, always, uh, well, you look at it and or pay attention. Well, how the heck would a kid understand next year, hopefully? <coughs> but what he was after was the grapevine will pick up its water at the different water level and pick up different minerals. And that becomes extremely interesting. So when we had these super years, uh, had something to do with water tables, I think, has a great influence on that. Uh, when you irrigate a vineyard, and uh, like a lot of it is in California, think about the Chardonnay. Uh, they didn't even make Chardonnay stainless steel. It was always coming out of oak, because all you tasted was oak, the butterscotch. Have you heard that before? Yes. Scotch and oak. Yeah, there was only oak. You never tasted Chardonnay. Today they make, finally I've learned, you know, especially coming from the northern part of the United States, Oregon, Washington, that we make a lot of it in uh, stainless steel. Now we are tasting the fruit. And it's a great wine. But uh, if you irrigate and you get the same level of uh, minerals out of the grapevine, you don't make a grapevine vari variation of wine. And boutique wineries to me doesn't mean small. Boutique wineries to me means that you do not try to manipulate the wine to the same taste every year that the bigger, bigger wineries have to do. You understand that, right? Mm -hmm. So boutique means to me, you let Mother Nature decide what the taste will be. And I think that's a great uh, way of doing it, uh, even so that you could never be the big player, obviously not, because uh, once you had a wine from Saint Michel, and you buy it five years later, it tastes the same, or from some other big wineries in California, and Oregon is starting to do the same thing, that uh, you will find that uh, they're trying to make the same taste every year. That's not boutique wine business. That is manufacturing. And to us, that is not what we like. We like the boutique wines. We like every year to let Mother Nature decide what the taste will be. And it's amazing what you find. How many pinos do we have down there right now that we pour? Eight? No, not quite. Not six like or eight. Five or six, yeah. And every one of them is different. It's quite interesting. Same technique, winemaking, but it's just the different years. I think one thing that I would add to it though from a winemaking perspective is that
you have to understand the industry and how it's evolved here too. Uh, you know, Oregon was very much um, a pioneering state uh, in terms of its its founding. So a lot of people that came to Oregon, there was nothing here at the time, and there was this desire to change professions. So you heard Dick Erath, he was an electrical engineer, and some of the others that came from various other backgrounds. They didn't have formal training in winemaking. So what you have to understand is, to make wine, yeah, though it's one of the oldest beverages on the planet, um, to make it consistently well, you have to have an understanding of the science that goes into it. So wine is part science and part artistry. And if you don't understand the science behind it, you, you don't consistently produce a quality product. Now what my dad is saying is the, the different flavor components. Well, what I'm saying is to be able to make a wine that is of good quality year in and year out requires that science knowledge and that typically comes either from having had a lot of experience, which most of the original founders did not have, so they were learning as they were going, and it wasn't until Oregon's industry really started to get to a point where we were producing enough quantity to where you could hire somebody. Somebody that had the formal training, maybe they didn't have the experience in making it yet, but they understood the science behind it. So they know that there are certain things you have to do at certain points in the life of the wine to produce a good quality product. Well, that's where the fluctuation was occurring. You would have some years where the wines more or less made themselves, and really that's what winemaking is all about. I mean, to a degree, my dad is saying is you're trying to take the fruit and you're allowing it to be an expression of that year's vintage. So you want that year's vintage to be unique in its own rights because it is not like all the other um, al alcoholic beverages where you are trying to reproduce something every year. You buy a six-pack of beer in the store from a particular brand, you're expecting it to be duplicated the next time you buy it. Wine is not like that. Even though the style can be made exactly the same, our reserve Pinot Noirs are done in the same style every year, but what's different is the growing season, and that changes the finished wine. But what I'm referring to more than anything else is the technical understanding that was required to make those wines were some years, you would go, wow, these guys were making fantastic wine. The next year you'd go back and go, this is awful. I wouldn't put this in my car's gas tank. It's awful, so bad. So that's that has very much changed. I mean, you still will find some people that are coming uh, into the industry that you know they they have this passion for wine. They don't necessarily want to be big, so they don't hire a winemaker or a consultant. And now all of a sudden they find, yeah, sometimes we can make good wine and sometimes we don't, and it's all because of that knowledge base that you need. So. In that regard, it's, a lot of that has changed because we have a larger industry now. There's a lot more understanding about grape growing and winemaking in the state of Oregon, which is very different from other parts of the world. Um, there have been some huge failures in the state where people have hired winemakers from California, tried to make uh, Pinot Noir in the way they make it in California, and it doesn't work. It's very, very different fruit that you're dealing with, and so you have to um, understand that. So that is a huge part of what has changed the industry and in addition there's so much competition you can't afford to make a bad wine because if you get it into a restaurant or get it in a grocery store or a wine shop and you make a bad wine um, they won't buy it anymore 
And so the competition has kind of weeded a lot of that out. So I think that's where we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, you're seeing a much more consistent quality that's coming out of Oregon, which is really great. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. That's what you want as a winemaker. You want the consumer to go, wow, this is a great bottle of wine. I'm wondering what so-and-so can produce in this variety or, you know, different part of the state. There's just so many different options there. And that's, that's what makes wine so different than all the other beverages that are out there in that it is made from Mother Nature. And it is different from year to year. And that's the fun part about it when you even are a winemaker because you say, well, you know, we're trying to shoot for a style like this, but wow, this year had these kind of characteristics. And for me as a winemaker, that is what's so unique is it's like having your own kids. Each kid has its own unique characteristics, and it's the same thing for wine. You can talk to me and ask me about a particular vintage, and I can tell you what happened in that growing season and what made that wine what it is. And that is really what is so unique and so exciting and so fascinating. You can taste, you know, in our winery right now, you can try three um, vintages back to back to back, and they're all going to be different. And that has a lot to do with what happened during the growing season. So a lot of that has really changed, and so from the consumer standpoint, I think it's fabulous because you're getting to find consistently good quality wines across the board, whether it's from the Willamette Valley, from the southern part of the state, um, whether it's a small winery, whether it's the big winery, you're just, you have a really, really great uh, opportunity to try some fantastic wines that are of very limited production. They're truly handcrafted. I mean, if you take the production of the state of Oregon, you compare it to California, it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep that in mind too. You can't just plant vineyards anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> you really have to have good climate, good soil. All those things shape what that wine will be in the end. You talked a little bit about um, the, the, the growing consumer market. So how have you guys adapted over the years from a really small industry when you were one of a handful of wineries to now having you know 600 or so wineries? <coughs> How have, the, how have you faced those challenges in terms of keeping your market, your brand name strong and your sales strong? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, for us, one of the reasons why we bought this property was not just the, the soil and the elevation and the influence of the Vantage Corridor, but one of the things that we looked at was, uh, and this is kind of interesting going backward, but um, my background is actually not in winemaking, it's in business, it's in marketing and management. One of the first things that we talked about was, well, if we're going to build this winery, it's not so much about the making of the wine, but you have to figure out how to sell it too. And one of the things that has been very, very crucial in our success is we have a major highway um, that is a thoroughfare to the coast. So anybody that's going to the beach, like you said, Rich, you've driven by dozens of times. So you would not believe, having been here for 25 years now, how many people still walk through the door, and we, we laugh at this, say, oh, I've driven by all these years, and I've never stopped in. And I said, well, today is the lucky day, right? <laughs> and, I, and so um, that retail exposure has been really, really critical for a number of reasons. Number one, it gives you a direct exposure to the consumer. Um, but that direct exposure allows us to also be great educators. And that's one of the things that we founded our business on was... Everybody in the taste room understands the wines. They understand how to pair it with food and how to make those recommendations. Because for the consumer, the average consumer walking through the door, a lot of them, maybe they like the idea of wine, they like to enjoy wine, but what they don't understand is, you know, what do I pair this wine with? And, you know, I need somebody to help me find the right kind of price point that will fit into my lifestyle. 
And all of those things are really critical. And if you have somebody that is willing to take the time and share that information, it makes your experience so much better. So in that regard, I think having a retail exposure has really been beneficial. Um, being able to share our knowledge with people has been crucial in our long-term success. The other thing that we have been very successful with, and that has been, um, again, very much influenced by our roots, is that in Europe, virtually everybody drinks wine, beer, and spirits. That's just kind of uh, part of your upbringing. And as I was saying earlier, a lot of people in this country still don't have an appreciation for wine. And that has to do partially with prohibition, has to do with the, the religious influence that we have in this country. But you take certain parts of the, the country where there's a lot of European influence, those people are very familiar and very comfortable with wine. We look at it very differently. It's not for us alcohol as it is food. It's part of the meal. And very rarely do you find people just saying, okay, well, I'm just going to open up a bottle of wine just for the heck of it, just to drink. It's typically at mealtime. And in Europe, if you don't find a bottle of beer or you don't find a bottle of wine on the table at mealtime, it's like, where are my salt and, sh and pepper shakers? It's, it's a part of the setting for the table. So in this country, I think that it requires more education and, and sharing with people and understanding, hey, you know, uh, if you choose the right wine to pair with the right type of food, you are going to have a completely new experience than if you just have that wine by itself. So that's very, very crucial. Um, so one of the things that we've done is when you look at Europe and everybody consumes wine on a regular basis, to do that you have to price yourself accordingly too. So uh, one of the things that's happened, of course, the financial crisis in 2008-2009 was very, very much felt in the wine industry. We are a luxury goods industry for sure. And it didn't change the fact that people stopped drinking wine, but if you had a lot of wealth in the stock market and you lost a lot of wealth, Okay, you're still probably worth a lot of money, and you may have changed your drinking habits a little bit. Instead of drinking $50 bottles of wine, you're now drinking two $20 bottles of wine. Okay? The segment of the market that has the most movement is under $20 a bottle. And that's where we've positioned a lot of our wines under the Chateau Bianca brand, and that has been very, very successful for us. So, um, making wines that are food-friendly, that are easy to drink, that are varietally true, and that are fairly priced, has really made a huge difference. Now, coming back to the financial crisis, I can tell you for a fact that a lot of the colleagues that I have in the industry that have focused their business model strictly on high-end, limited production, pre-release, futures type things, they really struggled. They really struggled because a lot of those people in restaurants, the buyers, the sommeliers, they were like, you know, my customers are not coming in here spending that kind of money on wine right now because things are tough. And another thing that was brought to my attention at that time, which I think is a very, very um, important point, a lot of people that still had money, they almost felt guilty to spend it because they knew their neighbor might be struggling. So it really influenced the industry greatly. And that was one of the things that very early on we looked at and we said, you know, if you can produce a, a really good bottle of wine at a very fair price, there's always going to be a consumer for it. So we certainly have, um, between the Chateau Bianca brand, we actually have, I make wine into three different brands here. So Chateau Bianca, um, the family crest that we pointed out, which is uh, from Germany, 
That is our Wetzel Estate label, so those are all single vineyard estate produced wines. And then I do some wines from Southern Oregon too that are under another brand called Obsidian, and those are Syrah, Tempermew, and then we do a red blend. Mm. So they're all differently positioned for different types of consumers, but again, I think that the, what drives the engine here is the day-to-day -day consumer. The wines that we produce in volume are those that are very affordably priced, and again, to appeal the group of the populace out there that wants to learn about wine, wants to drink it on a daily basis, and know that they can afford to do it on, a, on an ongoing basis rather than just for special occasions. Because wine is, like I said, if it's not on the table, you're missing something there. It's not just about the special occasion. And we have a lot of that in this country. We have a very small percentage of the population that does the lion's share of the wine consumption, and then we have a very small percentage of the population they consume for special occasions. So whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, New Year's, whatever, that's the only time that they consume. So um, it's the larger consumption, the regular consumers, they're the ones that drive the industry. But you know, to add to that, Andreas, when, he, when Andreas said education of the people, uh, how to enjoy wine, uh, I think uh, all my life, I have tried to educate people in consumption of wine, and I still do it today. You will be amazed of the stories I could tell you what so many restaurants do totally wrong. Even today, at this very moment, you have no idea how good restaurants screw up many ways, uh, simply by doing some terrible mistakes, partly given by the government. I don't want to get into it, it's quite a story. But nevertheless, uh, the education of a person goes like this. When you come and they say to me, and they did, I was in a tasting room for many, many years. When they say to me, I don't drink wine because it is, most of them they say, I can't drink it because it's really harsh or it's bitter. <laughs> or they never say dry. I mean, dry is, is another word. They don't understand that. But I cannot drink red wine. Uh, and when they leave and they bought red wine for me, I did something different, right? Sure. And you know, when that person leaves, he's stuck on you. <laughs> you know, he believes in you. I have people that come to me still today, they call me down there, say, Hamlet, they want to talk to you because you told them they got a good palate. And a lot of people do have a good palate. They just don't know wine. <laughs> so when you tell them that, by golly, I mean, you are a hero. And that is part of it, what our success is. It is the plain, simple fact we try to educate people. And besides, Andreas did a great job with selling wine also. I mean, he didn't say anything like that. He's a very modest guy. But we sold wine to China by the container loads. We, we have recently sold a container to Denmark, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we have done a lot of those things. And that is great volume. And uh, we. We do a good business with um, um, Costco, mm -hmm. um, so all of that is a volume. And beyond how many states now? I have no idea. Yeah, twenty. So on about uh, eighteen states. Eighteen states. So all of that brings the Oregon scene. We have not tried to influence very much, and that is obvious. We are in business also. We are not just silly people making wine. <laughs> I mean, it is a business venture, and. You know, how do you want to compete in a market there's now 600 wineries with that little bit of amount of population and even a smaller amount that drinks wine? Mm -hmm. I mean, they hit each other over the head with a wine. Go to a Safeway. 
I mean, it's flabbergasting when you look at all the wine they offer. What is a consumer supposed to think about that? I mean, no. Uh, we are not very interested. We are rather doing it through our tasting room. We have two tasting rooms. We have this one here, and we have one on the Sunset Highway, Highway 26. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are very happy with that, that we can still educate people in wine, and we are doing it still today, and we enjoy it. This was also a B&B when we still handled it. We have actually two extra rooms here and then an apartment below. We gave it up because my wife and I were getting too old for that. But you know, it was very easy to sell a thousand dollars worth of wine a night when you have three couples here. There's really nothing to it. And all you did was do the right thing with food matchup and wine and talk. A good bottle of wine, not talked about, it's just a good bottle of wine. A good bottle of wine talked about becomes a great bottle of wine. Don't <laughs> ever forget that. And it's the most enjoyable thing to have a good bottle of wine with a friend, or a future friend. And that is so easy, if you do it right. Right? You are, are you all old enough to, to drink wine? No, you're not, right? <laughs> you're old enough to drink wine already? Not so much. Well, you got to come and I teach you. <laughs> because it, it is really an amazing thing, especially what Andreas was saying, that the matchup is food. I mean, I can't imagine to have a dinner without wine. Now, there's also beer involved. Hmm. Um, there's a winery here in Oregon. I quickly throw that in. I don't tell you the name. But they are influenced of Europe also. They have a wine festival and they serve sauerkraut, and they only have wine. <laughs> and when I went there once with a bunch of friends of mine, because on account of the band, the band we knew also very well, German band, and uh, the, the band leader said to me, you know, if you have any wine you want to trade for beer, I bought beer. At <laughs> <laughs> a winery, because how do you match wine with sauerkraut. That's, That's a tough one. <laughs> As a matter there are a few wine pairings that just don't quite work out. <laughs> I mean, one of them. So you can't do that. So you don't have a beer with that, obviously. So all of that uh, is part of uh, what you need to know. But there's, I give you one hint. Whenever you don't know what to serve with food, take champagne. Champagne will go with any food, no matter what it is, particularly if it's a boot. Here's the thing that you have to remember that when you are of age, you're in one of the best places to be. You have no understanding until you've met somebody from Kansas City or from Texas or from Oklahoma that come to visit wine country because virtually 80% of the wine produced in the country is done on the West Coast. So to be in a state where there are wineries, where there are taste rooms, where you can go and try the wine rather than going to the store and going, oh, that's a pretty label, let me buy that one, <laughs> and hope that that's going to be something worthwhile drinking. So to go to the taste room and taste wines first, or go to a wine festival and try wines, that is the best opportunity. You have no idea how good you have it to be in a state yeah. where you can actually experience yeah. that. So that's something to remember, and for those of you when you get of age. <laughs> and we talked a little about uh, winemaking philosophy during the first part of the interview. Um, but I'm a little bit curious um, as to how your winemaking philosophy has evolved um, through the four generations of winemakers in your family. Well, I should start out. Yeah, I was going to say that's a good question. I'll let you start with that one. 
Well, when I remember, uh, and you have to uh, excuse the fact that I was a very young boy when uh, that happened, but my grandfather had a winery, there was no electricity. So all the equipment was hand-operated. When you think about it, of how hard that was in the vineyard alone, uh, you know, the rows were planted so close together that you could hardly go in between. And we were blowing uh, sulfur onto the plants. I mean, they had a little funnel type thing. You put the powder on it, you were blowing it on there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, wouldn't have been very good for my lungs, but I mean, uh, look at it, I'm 81, maybe it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the pumps, uh, I never forget this. There was a big wheel with a handle on it, and I had to do this, and my grandfather would, faster, Helmut, faster, while he missed I mean, I barely made it up there, and he wanted to have it faster. So, no chemicals at all, no chemicals. In order to get sulfur into the wine to preserve it, we had sulfur candles, and we held the bottles over the candle to get sulfur into the wine. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, that's what I learned. So I, my technique of making wine is very, very low tech. <laughs> I mean, if there is any tech there, but I can make wine. So then, of course, Andreas's are totally different. And of course, he also understands uh, of what modern techniques mean. But one of the things we still do today, we clean only with steam. So we don't use harsh chemicals in cleaning our tanks or anything. We still use steam. Very important, because there's no residue there. And to me, that is very important that you make a wine that has not been in contact with chemicals. Because if you would know what I all know about what certain wineries do, my goodness, you would never drink wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess that if I can jump in on, on that question too, uh, I think that that's a great point. A lot of the things that um, 20 years ago you would see in a small winery um, have changed to what you can find today. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there has been such growth in new wineries worldwide that a lot of the producers of the equipment have now taken things that you would typically only find in a very, very large facility and made smaller versions to allow you to have the same kind of tools at your disposal. Uh, but I think from a winemaking style perspective, I would say that um, a lot of what I look at is, you know, you're there as a winemaker to basically take what Mother Nature produced and see it along its path to get there safely to the bottle. Because once it's in the bottle, there's not really much I can do anymore. Um, the goal really is, and, and again, it depends on who you speak to in the industry, there are different foods of thought. And for me, it's wine really starts in the vineyard. And one of the reasons why that's so critical for us is we actually became live certi certified several years ago. And live and salmon safer in conjunction, and basically what they are is, uh, it stands for low input viticulture and enology. And so everything that we grow here is all about sustainable farming. We're being very, very conscientious in terms of the type of residue that we have that we leave on the vine when we spray. We're looking for things that do not have long saturation periods in the soil. We want to make sure that we don't have things that are potentially leaching their way into, into the, the water supply. 
Um, we're looking at beneficials. We're looking at natural fertilizers by planting cover crops that are tilled back into the soil. So all of those things are really, really critical because um, think of yourself as a human being and how if you feed yourself good food and you exercise and you take care of yourself, there are very, very few diseases that can really affect you. Um, it's the same thing with a plant. If you take good care of the plant, you give it good nutrition, and you care for it properly, it can fend off a lot of natural-born diseases more effectively than if you don't do it that way. And so by looking at that whole aspect, the, the grape growing, um, if you understand that and you do a good job with that, really the winemaking part is very, very simple. It's taking and taking that fruit, you process the fruit, you have juice, and then you put it through fermentation, and then you take it through its various stages. And of course, again, there's the artistry part for sure, and that changes the, the, the final product that you have, but the beginning part is really so much about what happens in the vineyard. So any winemaker that ever tells you it's all about me is completely wrong. It's the love and passion that goes into growing the grapes because that's a very, very arduous task to do it well. If you do that well and you work with people or you grow your own grapes and you understand that process, um, the wines that you will make will always be good. And that's why it's so very important as an industry. And as the industry uh, evolved here in Oregon, more and more people have become part of the live program and are very, very conscientious about that. And wineries are asking more and more growers, are you certified this way? Are you contributing to our overall goal as an industry to produce quality wines through sustainable farming practices? That's, that means a lot to people here in Oregon and to our industry. So that is a very, very critical part in terms of how it influences the wine. That, the equipment, all of that is, is going to make better wine over you know, the longer term that, we, that we've seen from the last 25 years. So, I, this is a tough question I know to ask winemakers, so uh, bear with me, but what is your favorite wine to make, and what is your favorite wine to drink? <laughs> Mine? Sure. Champagne. To make or drink, or both? Both. Both. I have always enjoyed that. That is partly due to my mom. She was a singer, and she always drank champagne. Most singers do, by the way. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen famous uh, performers, uh, every time the curtain came down, they had a glass of champagne. They couldn't walk after a while, but brother could they sing. <laughs> and what is happening is the gas in the champagne opens their blood vessels, and they actually can sing better. And uh, they have done that. I, yeah, some very famous people. So anyway, my mom always had champagne. And years and years ago, with Rich Cushman, by the way, he was working for us. And uh, I said, you know, I have a champagne in Germany. It's called Sekt, S-E-K-T. <clears throat> and I would like to have exactly that champagne made. Well, he didn't quite want to do that, but then finally we did. And I took it over to my mom in Germany, and, uh, but on the label it says, of course, sparkling wine. And my mom did not understand English very much. Uh, she could read it and repeat something, but she could not uh, understand most of it because she never learned English. So she reads it, and to her it sounded like cider, apple cider mm. kind of thing. 
oh no, no, Hamoud, I don't drink that stuff. <laughs> you go in the refrigerator and you get my champagne. And she had little piccolos, that they're called, uh, small bottles of wine, champagne. And so I poured one glass of hers, one glass of mine, I bring it in. And then she couldn't decide which is hers and which <laughs> is mine. Because I made it exactly like that. We are able to, to taste it and find out what did they do and what didn't they do. And we still do it today. We call it Cuvée Blanc. We have that. You shall try that later on. That's actually a wine made after a champagne out of Germany called... Um, First from Metternich. First from Metternich. So anyway, yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, if there is a favorite, I mean, I drink all of it with certain food, obviously. Uh, I used to enjoy port, and we make a great port. But uh, that is most enjoyed with a cigar, and I don't smoke anymore, so, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but that used to be, I worked for the British Army in Libya uh, for two years, and I learned how to drink port there with the generals. And they all smoked cigars with it, and I learned how to smoke cigars and have my port. But then, um, you know, if you don't smoke anymore, well, the port is not that good anymore, <laughs> for whatever reason. So that's mine. Um, yeah, that is a... Great question, and is a tough one. Um, but I, I would say that uh, for the most part, you know, when you make wine on a day to day basis, everyone is, like I said earlier, it's like a child, you know, and they all have their own unique characteristics. And I think they're all well suited for different types of settings and different types of foods. But I think that the thing that uh, appeals to me most is, you know, when you have a huge selection of wine to choose from, uh, what it really comes down to is complexity in wine. And so I tend to drink more red wines uh, when I'm at home, and that is because they offer me so much more uh, unique characteristics, especially reds that have um, aged in bottle, because when you get them in the right kind of glass and you give them air exposure, they change in the glass, even while you're having a meal, half hour, 45 minutes, the wines open up and they get more aromatic and they're more interesting. So every time you go back to me, you go, wow, I didn't pick that up last time, but I picked it up now. So for me, I, I would say that I prefer um, reds from the standpoint of complexity, but uh, for sure, I mean, I, I think that the most difficult wine, I would agree, is making champagne. And of course, in Oregon, it is called sparkling wine, but we use the same grapes, we use the same techniques, so it's all very traditional. Um, but uh, what he, my dad mentioned to you earlier about if you don't know what somebody's serving at a dinner party to take champagne, it's really true because the acidity in champagne is so very versatile in terms of pairing with food. And for most people, champagne is it's festive, it's celebration, it's, it's about enjoying life. So by far that is the most difficult wine to make because it's very technically oriented. Uh, but from a drinking standpoint, really it comes down to what am I having with food. 90% of it's going to be red, and the rest of it's going to be every variation of white. Is there a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, why... Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, too, is I come from a very well-to-do household in Germany. Uh, the war destroyed a lot of it, obviously. In fact, it destroyed it all. But uh, when I grew up, uh, when we had wine, which we didn't have all the time, due to my father's dislike. Now, I shouldn't say dislike, but he favored beer. Uh, we always had a glass of champagne before meal, because what it does, it cleanses uh, quite well, 
and uh, it does great uh, appetizing kind of a drink, if I may say that way. And uh, so I was used to having a glass of champagne first. That becomes later on when you can't get it uh, quite a problem because, well, even when you can get it later on and you can't afford it, <laughs> you know that once you open it, you can you pretty much have to drink it. Even so, we have the champagne stoppers, but you're losing a lot of the gas, and so the bubbles are pretty much gone. So that was important to me, and that's why champagne for me was always very important and enjoyed it immensely. Still do today. Still do today. So that's such a different take on champagne than any of us are ever used to. You know, it's a, like you said, the celebration drink. To think of it as a free meal. Well, this is American. See, this is American. Americans always think we're on a wedding. We gotta have champagne, and then they drink cold duck, <laughs> and then they get a headache, and then they never touch it again. Well, that's also bad. See, the cold duck is not a, not even a sparkling wine. I mean, this is anyway. Uh, you're right. We call it always festive, but you know the French actually live us champagne. Uh, I always enjoyed old movies from France where they have still the sidewalks covered with tables and they were ordering a glass of, or not glass, actually a bottle of champagne. There's rarely in those days where they bought a glass. They want the bottle and the waiter is supposed to open the bottle right next to them so they can make a whiff of the yeast. If it didn't get that whiff, they didn't want it that bottle because they knew that's not exactly what I want. Very important to them. So that's why they have that big nose. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, this is um, the, uh, the yeast nose of champagne is the most important part for the French people. And they drink a lot of champagne. Uh, and they do it just like I used to learn at home. You have it before a meal or you just have it by itself. Uh, oysters is another great uh, affair with champagne. Um, little story I showed when I have a, or had an aunt. Uh, she was married to a guy that was in charge of the banana uh, warehouses in Hamburg. Hamburg is the biggest harbor in, in Europe. And uh, he was in charge of that and he was a very stiff kind of a guy. I mean, he didn't drink wine or champagne or anything like that where his wife came out of a very well-to-do household also, where my mom, of course, came from. And uh, so she kind of was reduced to that level of his living. Well, he died, and they opened up in Hamburg a very, very fancy area for shopping indoors in old Patrizia houses. And in these houses, they had a champagne bar where they served oysters and champagne. And it was done like in France, I mean, these are not on the street, I mean, this is inside a mall, so to speak. And they had these high tables and the high chairs. And my sister, that lives still in Hamburg, was walking through it when they opened this up. Who does she see there? My aunt, sitting, sipping champagne and eating oysters. She never did it in her whole life. But that she had to try, and she was a regular guest later on there. <laughs> I mean, she literally rented the dawn table there. I mean, you think about that. Just because she was reduced to that by her husband later on, she was really in love with it. So that's one of my great stories of champagne. Champagne and oysters. Raw oysters, by the way. We call them shooters here. 
do you, uh, when you look back at certain vintages, uh, do you find the ones that are, uh, do, you, do you find them more memorable when they're really good or when they're more of a struggle for you to make a good wine? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, in our media-driven society that we have, whenever there is a vintage that um, everybody talks about, you know, from the standpoint of the grapes and the quality and what things are looking like they're going to be, and um, as we're getting them made into wines, and uh, you, some critic writes about it and says, oh, you know, this is just going to be so fantastic. Unfortunately, I think that... Um, the, the mindset in the industry is, well, when you have a great vintage, you want to get it bottled up right away and you want to get it out there as quickly as you can so it kind of can tag onto that media stream, if mm -hmm. you will. And I think, unfortunately, what happens is in a lot of those years, the wines get sold out so quickly that the consumer, for the most part, doesn't really get to appreciate them. So I think that there's a lot of really great vintages that they are consumed too early that should be given more time in the bottle to really develop. Um, and you know, for the most part, if you follow any kind of um, market research when it comes to wine consumption, the average life of a bottle of wine is about 24 hours. So the person that goes in the store, buys the bottle, takes it home, and they typically drink it. Um, people really, you know, there are a certain segment of the population that understand wine and collecting wine. So they're buying wine and they understand that it's not really meant to be consumed now. Um, and you don't typically buy wine by the bottle when you do it that way. You buy it by the case and you put it down with the understanding that this wine will take two, mm -hmm. three, four, five years or longer to age. What I find so interesting about Pinot Noir is that a lot of people are confused. They assume that because it's a lighter body variety that it does not have the ageability that you would find. Well, we have some wines in our wine library from older vintages going all the way back to 1991. And even though the color is starting to be lost on those wines, the wines are beautiful. I mean, um, the aromatics are there, the flavor profile is there, the colors are just slowly but surely fading away. Mm -hmm. So, given the opportunity, if people take the time and they invest a little bit in that wine, they would be surprised as to what they will find with giving the wine five, six, seven, eight years. And of course, that, that does come back to winemaking. So there are certain styles of wines that we produce that are meant for early consumption and early release, where those wines that are really meant to be uh, given the opportunity to age and develop in the bottle, those are the ones that are a little bit more unique. Um, I would say that, you know, it, it is, um, I guess it's a gratifying experience to have a challenging vintage as a winemaker and make a great wine from that and be able to say, you know, this is what happens when you listen to the critics who say, oh, you can write organ off for blah, blah, blah year because it was so hard for the grape growing and, sure. and it was such a struggle and the fruit didn't ripen that way or this way. Um, and make a really beautiful wine from it and say, you know, so much about making wine, as I said earlier, is directly related to the fruit. And what's unique is that every vineyard site has its own unique climate. So it's not only just temperature, we talked about air influence earlier, elevation, soil type, all those things are unique to that site. So my site is going to be different from my neighbors 10 miles down the road. What changes all of that in terms of how the wines will end up being made is when do I make the decision to pick. Mm -hmm. 
So if I make a decision to pick um, and I make the right choice, I'm going to make a great wine. So irregardless of what somebody will say about a region, that's not always going to be true. And that's true for every region in the world. Sure. It all comes down to when you pick the fruit. Because once you pick it, you have set yourself on the course to making that wine. You sure. can't put it back. And that's where I think a lot of gratification comes from, is when you do have the challenging years and you can make a great wine, and you can say, you know, what you said about this vintage wasn't fair. It really shows itself in this wine. So there's a lot of gratification there. And, and like I said, it's um, in the great vintages, of course, everybody likes to work with the exceptional year where everything is textbook. Sure. The fruit parameters are perfect. The flavor profiles are there. The weather conditions are all in your favor. The wine basically makes itself. The ones that are hard and they make great wine can later on say, Turned out to be pretty, pretty good, wasn't it? So, I think that's the way I, I perceive it. You know, I really, I think that in Oregon, um, the inconsistencies that we saw earlier on with the challenges that we have in the, the weather um, from vintage to vintage, there's more knowledge base now that we have in terms of making wine in those kind of conditions than we've ever had before. And that's really what a good winemaker gets paid for. It's when things aren't quite right, sure. that's when you know what to do to make it right. And that comes from experience. Years and years of experience. Speaking of experience, we talk about when to pick. That's more than just gut feel, right? I mean, you're looking for something specific? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that uh, you're looking for in the vineyard again. Um, you're looking for maturity of the fruit based on the skin starting to thin out. You're looking for the seeds starting to brown. You're looking for lignification in the shoots. Um, you start to see a change in the color in the canopy. All those things are signs. Uh, then we'll take a random sample from our various blocks that we're you know, considering to pick. We look at a juice panel on those, uh, those samples, so we're analyzing what the sugar is, where the acids are, where the pHs are. But the final decision always comes down to what does it taste like? And that really is one of those things that, again, it comes back to experience because those people that are early out of school and they're being given that responsibility for the first time, if they're lucky enough to have a really good vintage and everything textbook-wise looks great and they make the decision strictly on the numbers, they'll be sadly disappointed because it really comes down to the flavor profile. And when you are patient, and winemaking requires an enormous amount of patience, you have to know, and you're, you're looking at a, a huge number of variables. You know, what is the weather like coming up? Is this, this fruit looks like it's ready to pick in the next couple of days, but we are, the forecast is we're supposed to get two inches of rain. Mm -hmm. Will it affect my sight, or will it pass me by? Sometimes it's gambling. You throw the dice and you hope that we don't get the kind of rain that they're forecasting, and it blows off, and now you have another good week of ripening time, and then you make your decision to pick, and that's again where that vintage could be so different based on when you make that decision. So I think that all of that really comes down to what is it that you taste and making that final decision based on that because there are certain things you can do to change the, the chemistry of, of the juice itself, but it's what you smell and what you taste. You can't really influence that. That really is what Mother Nature gives you for that year and that's what you make your final decision on. You know, I want to add something to that. I'm more the farmer, he's more the winemaker. Because when the fruit is ripe and the weather turns lousy, I'm sitting here and my heart is going like this. <laughs> we better pick it, Andreas. 
it flavor is not there yet. Let's just wait. Oh Lord, look at that weather. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, that is really heartbreaking when you, and, and luckily we have never had, he was always right. He was always Write that down somebody. <laughs> I don't I, get to hear that very often. I, I must really say that, but I, so many times I'm just so worried because there's a lot of money out there. You know, when you look at the enormous amount of money hanging there and then you could lose it. Oh man, oh man, oh man, I cannot stand that. I'm getting very, very anxious to get that food off. And you're, Dad, let's, let's just wait, let's just wait. The flavor is not quite there. He was always like, don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't change it. I mean, that's in you, you know. Uh, since I, I have been the financier of this winery, you know, the, the money is in me. I mean, I, I'm worried about it still today. Can you believe it? Before. But I do. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Okay. So, I had to add that. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. He told you you were right. I mean, that's not so bad to have on film. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, throughout the course of this interview, we talked about the history um, that you guys have um, had in the wine industry here in Oregon. Um, where do you think the future of Oregon is kind of going towards? It's a good one. Where will it go? I, I personally think uh, for the whole world, when you look at the whole world, that everybody gets into wine. There is not a single state in the Union that does not produce wine, including Alaska. They bring uh, concentrate juice to Alaska and make wine there. I mean, you think about that. Texas has a lot of uh, wineries now. I mean, there's wine being produced everywhere. So ultimately, you ask yourself, uh, where will this industry go? I mean, are we going to overproducing or will we not? Uh, there's only so much wine that people will drink. Uh, even so, there is a growing population, not necessarily in the United States very much, but you look at India and China, um, the Chinese don't drink wine the way we drink it, they just chuck a luck. You know, the Japanese do the same thing. Um, so the culture of wine is more oriented in Europe and in the United States. Uh, we are seeing a lot of culture uh, in some other uh, areas of the country. I was amazed of the big culture of wine in Mexico. Uh, we have that. But does the populace, does the population drink wine? No, they don't. So you have few segments that still could increase um, their consumption of wine. But where will we all go? The industry as such will always survive. We see that in Germany um, or in France or in Italy, uh, enormous amount of production. And you always was wondering, what the heck are we doing with all that wine? Well, Germany, France, they export a lot of wine. Look at Australia, an enormous wine-producing area, and the population is very small, and yet uh, they're making a lot of wine there while well, they export a lot. They export a lot to, even to Oregon. Uh, and so you wonder where will that all end up? I personally think uh, it will settle out, ultimately. A lot of the wineries will disappear. Uh, not just uh, small ones that struggle, but also larger ones. Uh, vineyards are a farming process, 
and we have seen that in the farming industry all the time. Today the big crop is not wine right now. What is it, you know? Hazelnuts. Hazelnuts is just a farmer thing right now. It almost scares me to see how much land they're using for that. Uh, I have been in the Okanagan Valley uh, a couple of years ago on the Canadian side and I wanted to find out what makes that area so unique for ice wine. They produce a lot of ice wine at will every year uh, because they have the unique climate. I got ice wine in my cellar uh, $1,000 a bottle from Germany. Well, you can get the same quality from Canada for 40, 50 bucks. Uh, it's that simple because they can do it every year. In Germany, you can wait four or five years mm -hmm. before you can actually have a good ice wine. And in the meantime, you lose always the crop. So I've been there and they have taken out all the apple and pear orchards that they had up there. There was a huge apple growing area and they became vineyards. Uh, that is doing better there than the apples and the pears, obviously. Here in the United States, or especially in Oregon, who knows how it will end up with the hazelnuts. Hazelnuts, you can go in areas where grapes would not do so well, in flat areas. Every time I see a flat vineyard, I have to really think, what's wrong with these people? They don't think that you should not do this. Uh, especially when I go by this uh, museum out there, and there's this huge vineyard, and they irrigate it on top of it. And I'm like, what the hell are these people doing? So, and obviously you can tell also when you had that wine, you, all, you know immediately what's wrong here. So, uh, where will that go? I think it will settle out. I think for Oregon, uh, we have uh, a lot of wineries, but there will always be a lot of small ones. Uh, they are living off this little bit of tourism and a little bit of wine sale here and there, and they're happy with it. Uh, we would not be, we, we are in business, uh, we want to make money with it. And even so it takes a large fortune, and now we're trying to make a small one. That's okay. <laughs> it's a retirement program. <laughs> but at the same token, we still need to make money. And we cannot see that under the present uh, situation, Oregon would be a, a big thing for us. Um, if you have a lot of money in the background and you can fool around with it, so be it. We are not. Uh, we have spent our money. Uh, it's in our equipment, in our building, in our farm, and that's it. So now we got to make money, and uh, we are doing it. But uh, the industry as such will clean out, just like it did in Germany. A lot of the smaller vineyards have disappeared um, because they just could not make money with it. Our own vineyard is no longer in the hands of the Wetzel family. My cousin ended up with it. And after he spent more money than he was making a year just to maintain it, he finally said, well, I give up, and he sold it, and it went to the Catholic Church. They own it today. Uh, and they can afford it because they have free labor, a lot of free labor. Right? They sent the monks in there and they said, you work here. <laughs> and uh, they do it. Uh, he couldn't. He had, had it done, and it was just too costly. So that will settle all out. Um, the other thing is that I think uh, what most people don't realize, but a lot of the um, uh, airlines uh, and foremost uh, Air, uh, Lufthansa have actually bought their own vineyards. They were not able to get a decent supply of what they consume in the airline business uh, on wine from certain 
uh, wineries. So they bought their own to make the guarantee that they have uh, enough wine. And in first class and in business class in Lufthansa, you get wine for free. And uh, what that means is that any passenger usually walks out with bottles of wine in the luggage or they drink it. They have a small box bottle. It's like a Matus bottle. I, I'm sure you have seen those. There's one up there. Uh, but anyway, uh, those kind of things uh, in the uh, transport uh, industry, that will grow. That will grow more and more. And it's not going to be the cheap little bottles that you can get from California in an airline. Um, and you pay five or six bucks for it. I mean, it will be the better wines. So that will be another industry that I think has a big future. So I think the industry will be fine, but I, uh, I think the industry will have to clean up uh, a lot of things, and it will happen. So I think it will be all Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I would add to that is that um, what makes Oregon unique is the fact that the Pinot family is what drives our industry. So that's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and to a lesser extent, Pinot Meunier. Um, there are a lot of different varieties that are grown in the state, and a lot of new ones that are just coming to light. You know, Tempranillo, a Spanish variety, has become well known. Uh, Viognier is another one. Um, I think that there are, there's always this desire in grape growing and winemaking to try different things. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is um, where's the sustainability of that with the consumer? And so much of that is really about your climate, your soil, and what will grow well in your region. I mean, I, I remember very clearly 10 years ago, there was a guy here in the valley, he was growing Zinfandel. And in really warm years, the fruit was great. But the other five years in between, you couldn't get it ripe. So a lot of those varieties that people are experimenting with, I think a lot of them are going to disappear. Um, I think what my dad is saying is true. I think there are going to be certain vineyards that will disappear because the quality is not consistently good. Um, I think that comes from people saying, well, we want to have a vineyard in the worst way and we're just going to, this is going to be the site and there's not a lot of thinking going into it and they plant something and then they later on discover, hey, it's not producing what we need. So that, you can't just grow Pinot Noir everywhere. It has to really be a good site. It has to fit in those parameters. And if you have that, I think it'll be able to sustain itself over longer periods of time. How much will the industry grow? Personally, I think that um, because of Oregon's size, there's only so many good sites for Pinot Noir, and that is an upper limit. That's a threshold you can't go beyond, other than if you choose to say, okay, well, we're going to buy valley floor property and plant a vineyard, and then we're going to have a result of lower quality product. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, from a, a reputation standpoint, people will find that we consistently produce good quality product, and there's always a market for good quality product. I mean, look at anything that you can think of out there, whether it's a, you know, clothing or whether it's a car or whether it's an appliance there are consistently good producers of those things that's what people you develop a reputation for that you know we call it brand organ so consumer in australia or consumer in south america or wherever that runs across oregon wine is going to say you know they've got a good reputation 
we will continue to buy this product. But again, I think there's, there is an upper limit in terms of how much you can produce, just sheerly based on suitable vineyard sites. Um, look at Burgundy. I mean, they don't produce a lot of wine there, and the, the cost of their wine is exorbitant. And you could see some of that happening in Oregon as well. But I think, overall, I think that the industry is, is very healthy. I think it's a, it's a very, very good um, addition to farming in Oregon. You know, we lost a lot of industry to, um, uh, to timber. Uh, that has seen a major change, but Oregon's addition of uh, vineyards has been very, very good for the state from a revenue standpoint. Uh, so I think it has a good future, or really do. Um, but time will tell. We'll see how it, how it plays out over the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years. It'll be okay. Um, so those are the questions that we have for you guys. Is there anything that you'd like to add or that we didn't ask and perhaps we should have? I would say that the only thing that I would add is that um, it's important for people to understand how relevant the Oregon wine industry is to the state and that as consumers, people should be made aware of buy locally. Because there is, it's, it's such a large wine world. Um, what I find disturbing is that as a state, even though we have a fairly small population, if you were to look at the record of wine that is imported into the state in relation to how much wine is sold in-state from Oregon producers, it would blow you away how much more wine is being consumed from other places. So whether that's California or Washington or Europe or wherever, you would be shocked when you think that you have a huge wine industry here that so much more wine is being consumed from other places than what is being produced and consumed from locally. So my thought would be whether that is you're going to buy locally produced um, beef or whether it's vegetables, it's the same thing for wine. I might add something to that because uh, I started years ago a program because I was so frustrated with the amount of wines that came into the state. There actually came more wine into the state than we all produced in the state. And that made me so angry because we made already excellent wine. I'm not just talking about us. I mean, there's a lot of good wineries here, even then. And, you know, I go to the airport. I have a important visitor here from Germany and we're going to the airport and he had a little bit of time I said come on let's go and have some food I forgot the name of the restaurant in, uh, uh, at the mall at the time and we walk in there and they had a huge wine book and they said well let's have an Oregon wine they had three Oregon wines there I got so angry so I called the manager over and I complained to him and I told him you know what this is really bad so, oh, he said, I, you're right, I'm going to change this. I, I will absolutely promise you to change it. I go about a year later back, they had five organs. <laughs> and that is part of the problem. That is part of the problem. Excuse me. Uh, that is part, that's my, not my phone, my phone is here, that's my wife's. So, <laughs> uh oh, I don't want somebody. <laughs> but, the problem, the problem is that is that the orientation of the restaurants, mainly the restaurants, was if I have an Italian restaurant, I gotta serve a Pinot Grigio. Uh, that's Italian word. Well, it's Pinot Gris in English, 
and it's Grauburgunder in German. So if you're in a German restaurant and you want to serve Pinot Gris, you should buy a Grauburgunder, right? It's so stupid, I can hardly believe it. You, what you should actually do is pick the best and name it whatever you want to name it. You can name it on your Italian list. <laughs> I have a friend that has an Italian restaurant and it's the same problem. I could never sell him our Pinot Gris. He would buy other wines from us. He bought our Pinot, he bought port, he bought all of that. But Pinot Gris, it had to be Pinot Gris show. And you know, I, I would never buy that wine because I never liked it. In fact, we went to um, San Francisco several years ago and I met, oh God, uh, there must have been about 20 Italian wineries there, and they all had Pinot Grigio. And I tried every one of them, and I didn't like a single one of them. And I, I called them and said, come on, over, let's try an American Pinot Grigio. It's not Pinot Grigio, it's Pinot Gris, it's the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah, we know that. And when we went back, they said, well, Hamlet, the wine is the same, don't even try it. They knew, because it's a hot climate that they have, and where they grow these grapes, and it gets a very thick skin, and not the liking of what we have in Pinot Gris, our Pinot Gris, totally different. And so we have a much, to us, a much better wine. But you know, my buddy, no way. I have Pinot Gris here. And that's the problem. It's, it's a mindset. So anyway, I started a company where we made those sculptures, and what it was, where you would go to a restaurant and you give them a, a ticket or a, a card, actually they had even some jewelry, if they want, they would get 20% off if they buy a glass of Oregon wine. The industry was not ready for it. The industry was still relatively small compared to today. Today it might work, I don't know. But then it didn't work. We were not able to get the restaurants to accept that. And to me, it stayed in the, in the country. The money would roll around. I learned economics. And so, to me, it is a very simple fact. If you do that, it comes back to you. And still today, you go to the restaurants and you find wines from all over the world, and usually very little from Oregon. Some are very good, but that's very few and in between. And that is a sad story. That to me, is very sad and should be addressed all the time, that when so much wine is brought into the state, and it's not, when people always say, well, it's the price. It's not. It's not the price. It is, when, I mean, I gotta mention this winery even so I don't like to do that. I, when I look at Gallo, Gallo has their own distributorship in Oregon. Their own distributorship. So you go into Safeway and the likes, and you see all of the different brands that Gallo makes or bought. And they're right at your eyesight, at the highs. They're right there. So that is part of where people grab it. Mm -hmm. How many times have everybody told, look at the bottom shelf. There's also some good stuff there. And it's usually cheaper. <laughs> well, but when you have that kind of situation, how will you ever make it in such a great state as Oregon is in the wine industry? And I tell you, we make incredible wines in Oregon. Absolutely incredible. And it's not where Erie won the big awards uh, in the French competition. Uh, forget about that. I mean, overall, there's incredible wine being made in Oregon. Why bring in the same brand from someplace else and buy it? I don't understand that. Because it will help all of us when the money stays here. Very important. 
Remember that when you start drinking wine. But you, sh <laughs> but you should, no, I shouldn't say it that way. I should say, remember when you buy wine, you could try and should try foreign wines also and have a comparison. I have a friend that's a very important friend here in, in Dallas. So a lady owns a restaurant here too. She went to France and spent a good amount of time there and was really into wine. And when she came back, she said to me, Helmut, I'm so glad I'm back. I finally can find good wine. <laughs> I mean, that is a sad story when you think about that. And she said, it didn't matter what I buy, whether it was low end or high end. I still wasn't happy with it. What a story. And that is not an influence of me. I mean, she, that woman knew what she was doing. She's very well to do, by the way. So, it's true. We make incredible wines here. And uh, there's a lot of reasonable good wine here. It doesn't have to be expensive. I want to leave that with you guys. Not so much for this, but for all of you. We have good wine. Try it. <laughs> And you should try also wines from other places because it gives you a good comparison of where they are. Okay. And one one of the things I want to mention with the hazelnuts yet, uh, since none of you knew that, there's only two countries in the world that grow commercial hazelnuts. Did you know that? Anybody knew that? Turkey is one of them, and the other one is Oregon. And the big influence comes from uh, China now. The Chinese have discovered. Hazelnuts are very good nuts, and they are buying the heck out of it. I mean, it's unbelievable. There's stores that have closed down on the way to Eugene. There was a big uh, hazelnut grower. He had a big store. He closed it down. He didn't have to have it anymore. He can sell it all to China and make a fortune with it. So two countries only. What a competition. Right? <laughs> so, anyway. Well, thanks, you guys. Thank you yeah, thank so you much. So much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.